Well, friends, if you would take your copy of the Scriptures and turn with me to the prophet Micah in chapter 7. If you want to use the chair Bible, you can find this on page 781. 781. As we continue together a series of reflections on the love of God, we are coming this morning to Micah and to the conclusion of Micah's prophecy in Micah 7. I want to remind you a couple of things before we read the text. This prophecy was preached in the 8th century BC during a very dark season for God's people. Assyria is tearing through the nation of Israel and Judah, threatening Jerusalem, and coming days of Babylonian destruction are on the horizon. These evil empires of Assyria and Babylon are exalting themselves in power. And God has been pleased to give His people over into their hand because of their ongoing and unrepentant sin. All kinds of sins. Idolatry, immorality, deception, drunkenness, but maybe strongest of all, a failure to listen to God's Word. So Micah's book is filled with portents of judgment, covenant curses that are rightly falling on God's people. Yet, as we read about in Habakkuk in wrath, God remembers Mercy, and the love and mercy of God won't vanish. In fact, one of the most amazing things about the covenant love of the Lord, even among the sin of God's people, is that that sin can't make God's affections for His beloved to cease. He's determined to doggedly pursue His people with covenant love because He delights in love. And with a view to that thought, we're turning here to Micah 7, And would you stand with me? We're going to pray and then read the Word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come as needy people to hear Your words to us, to hear Your reassurances of Your character, Your nature, Your work. And we pray that You would grant to us ears that hear and eyes that see. And we pray that You would impress Your truth upon our hearts. Show us Your majesty as we read this passage of Scripture, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Micah 7, verse 18 to the end. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is God's Word. Brethren, please be seated. Throughout Micah's prophecy, He gives multiple hard words of coming disaster which will meet Samaria and Jerusalem. And yet, while His people are shackled with sin, the book is still peppered with hope. In fact, this prophetic witness moves back and forth in its structure between devastation and deliverance. Michael will come and confront the sin of God's people, and detail the destruction that will be on the horizon. And then he will preach of the days when the darkness will lift. In the middle, 
of Micah's prophecy is one of the most hope-filled prophecies. You maybe know it from Micah 5. It speaks of a coming Savior to be born in Bethlehem. We'll reflect upon that text in a couple of weeks' time. Well, that's one of the most well-known prophecies in the book. But we turn now to the end where Micah, amidst all the present affliction, is waiting on the salvation of the Lord. And as he finishes his prophecy, he gives one of the most staggering declarations of God's love and what God's love does in all the Bible. And this word evidences to us God and His love is truly incomparable. And I want to reflect with you on why it is our Lord is incomparable. Why is He without equal, why is He a God who is unsurpassed and utterly unique? We're going to think on four reasons. First, I want you to see with me, He is unparalleled because He pardons iniquity. He pardons iniquity. If you look at verse 18, Micah begins the section with a question. Who is a God like you? Now it's a play on Micah's own name, which means, who is like Yahweh? And that's a significant question in view of the trouble of the times. Now, we've been working through Chronicles in the evening, and we've seen how the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, had sent his cronies to intimidate Hezekiah as he's shut up like a bird in a cage in Jerusalem, and the armies of Assyria have surrounded the city. And Sennacherib said through his ambassadors, here people of Judah and Jerusalem, Don't let Hezekiah deceive you into believing that Yahweh will deliver you from trouble. For who of all the gods of the nations have been able to deliver out of my hand? What a pompous thing to say. I'm more powerful than all the gods and what gods could possibly stand against me? And his argument is, Yahweh is not any different than all of the other local limited deities with their impotence. He can't take away the great threat to you people. Of course, that will be the very thing he does when he sends one angel to crush 185,000 Assyrians in one night. But while all the other nations would boast of the power of their God, and Yahweh has greater power than all, that is not the thing that Micah wants to highlight to show you the incomparability of the Lord. He says instead, who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance. The thing that makes our Lord without equal, brethren, is His full and free forgiveness. And the two phrases here highlighting that forgiveness recall a particular scene in Israel's history. The golden calf debacle. You remember Moses is up on the mountain and the people of God have goaded Aaron into making for them an idol uh, and he, he does it, and they're falling down and worshiping before a golden calf and dancing around it and doing all kinds of wicked things. Well, the Lord recognized this was a breaking of the covenant. Moses throws down the tablets of stone. And then he comes and he pleads for God to have mercy on this people. And he pleads that the Lord would still go with them into the promised land. And at that season of great sin, God reveals His name to Moses. I'm sure you remember this. We've talked about it a lot in the series. That He is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. A God keeping faithfulness or steadfast love for thousands and forgiving 
Same word in our text. Forgiving, pardoning, iniquity, transgression, and sin. It's that forgiving nature that brings the prophet to a state of marvel. The Lord literally, the word pardon means to lift. He carries away iniquity. Now, iniquity is not a beautiful word. It's a word to talk about what is bent, twisted, and distorted in our inner being that then gives rise to rottenness in our deeds. And that corruption from within us, which we carry out, warrants the wrath of God. But what transfixes Micah and what should amaze you and me too is that it's the glory of the Lord to pardon sin, to take all of that inner twistedness and iniquity demanding our destruction and to remove it from us. Now what exactly does that mean? Well, it pictures another significant time in the history of God's people. Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. Now I know that Leviticus is not your favorite book, but that's a chapter you need to know about. It's a day when God told His people they were to bring an offering for the sins of all the people of God and all of their priesthood. And they brought two goats to the tabernacle. The first goat is killed as a sin offering, and mercy is sealed as blood is sprinkled on the ark. But then there's a second picture with a second goat. Aaron was to take his hands and lay it on the head of that live goat and confess all the sins, all the iniquities, particularly, same word as here, of the people upon the beast. And with that beast covered in Israel's guilt, the goat was taken into the wilderness to lift or carry away, same verb, our iniquities. And that action declared by pictorial representation what the Lord is doing for us. He's taking our guilt and He's putting it on a substitute so that we bear the guilt no more. We've been freed Our burden has been lifted. We now have the unmerited pardon of the living God. Well, here is Micah looking at all the sin of God's people who've kept sinning and kept sinning and shown themselves to be stubborn and foolish. And still, God is a pardoning God. A God who lifts His people's burdens, who takes guilt away and sets them free. That is amazing. This is an incomparable truth. No one would bear with such a twisted people. We don't even like to put up with ourselves. But the Lord is bearing with and bearing with and bearing with. And He also tells us the Lord passes over the transgression of the remnant of His inheritance. The word transgression is another important Bible word you need to understand. It means rebellion. And when it's rebellion against God, as R.C. Sproul was famous for putting it, that is cosmic treason. It's one thing to forgive light sin, ignorant, foolish missteps, but rebellion, rebellion against God? Would that be passed over? For brethren, this is what makes God's grace so incomparable. He gives grace to rebels Indeed, this is what the prophet Isaiah says should make you want to come to God who will abundantly pardon. Because God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And God's ways are not our ways. We would not forgive rebels. But He does. 
we would never bear with ongoing striking against us. We may put up with a lot, but fist-shaking rebellion? That would only draw our ire. But the Lord our God will relent from giving rebels what they are due. Now, I want you to notice in our text that it does not indicate the Lord passes over the rebellion of all people. It says He passes over the rebellion of a particular people. You see what the text says? The remnant of His inheritance. That is another way to say the people God has set apart for Himself. His elect. But what makes those people to differ from the rest of mankind? What makes the remnant even to differ from those within the covenant community who are experiencing judgment? Has the remnant earned the favor of God? Have they turned over a new leaf and put themselves back in God's good graces? Have they merited God's overlooking activity? Well, no. What does the text say they've done? The remnant have rebelled against the living God. Do you understand what Micah is saying? He's saying that God's elect, the very people that God has preserved, that He's been pleased to help, to save, to awaken with faith and repentance, are in their hearts rebels. And yet the Lord passes over that rebellion. We need to be careful here that God's passing over activity isn't us thinking that God says, I'll just forget the whole thing. Let's just pretend it didn't happen. God is not an indulgent Santa Claus of the sky. He has a little song about how you know, He's going to reward some and punish others in the sense that He's really not serious. He's just going to give everybody something good. Don't have a misconception about what God is really like. God doesn't suspend His justice. Sin can't be pardoned without atonement. That was the picture of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. A substitute will be needed. Now, the substitute here is not explained, but there's a hint of some great transaction, some sin transference to a lamb or a goat or something to take away sin from us. And nevertheless, the Lord will not give us what we deserve even though we should be struck down. And beloved, we know what that great transaction is. Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26, Paul says God passed over the sins of His people that had been previously committed and He laid them on Jesus. And He passed over the sins of all of us who trust in Christ and He lay them on Jesus and Jesus is the Lamb to take the blow that God would be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. He gets our sin. We get His perfect record. How could it be that God would take the iniquity of us all and lay it on Jesus? There would only be one reason that you're not amazed by that. You don't understand your sin. If you understand your sin, you understand how amazing it is that God would lift it off of you and place it on His Son. That God would be pleased. That's the language of Isaiah 53 verse 10. That it would please the Lord to crush Him, Jesus. That He would be a guilt offering in our place. 
This is wondrous love. Do you understand? Our God is ready to forgive. He's holding out the remedy for your guilty stains. He's willing to make us be at peace with Him through the gift of Christ. How can we rebels be welcomed? Isn't the grace of God incomparable? Are we awestruck by it? Are we filled with wonder? Or is it just, ah, oh, well, that's a nice sermon today. You know, we talked about the whole God forgiving sin thing. This is amazing. And it's why we come into the, the courts of God with thanksgiving. That He will welcome us at all. But there's another reason God is incomparable. He delights in steadfast love. You see it also in verse 18 in the second half. We're elaborating here on God's pardoning nature. Micah says He does not retain His anger forever. The sense here is He doesn't strengthen His anger, make it firm, or become resolute in His just wrath. In other words, Micah is telling us the Lord isn't ruthless, ready to keep a quarrel going. Do you know that tendency in your own heart? to like being mad and to go on being mad because you want to get a pound of flesh and you're set on edge to repay evil for evil, like you're looking for an opportunity to stick it to someone. That's not what our God is like. There's a lot of evil He could repay in His bride, His people, but the Lord longs not to punish, but to be gracious, to show mercy. And two things need to be recognized here in this statement. The Scripture teaches, even in that foundational word about God's character in Exodus 34, that He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. It also teaches that God by no means pardons the guilty or leaves the guilty unpunished. That means those who offend the justice of God will receive the punishment of God. In fact, the Bible is very clear about this. The wicked will have no peace, Isaiah 57. It stresses that God is a righteous judge who feels indignation, anger, every day, Psalm 7. The evildoer, therefore, will not stand in the judgment, Psalm 1. The way of the wicked will perish. So Micah is not saying the Lord just makes His anger vanish. No, remember, this whole prophecy is outlining the anger of God coming upon the disobedient. That's why he's preaching against their sin. But a second thing to note is this willingness to refuse to retain anger towards his people, those the Lord has taken to himself, is an action that is particular to his people. He shows them mercy, his people. Now, it's not that they should be free from receiving His anger. They shouldn't be free of that. They should get His anger. We should get His anger. We have rebelled. Our sin deserves the wrath and curse of God. But with His set-apart people, who in themselves are unlovely, God is pleased to show mercy. He doesn't hold on to His anger against us. Now, it's not as though God will forget His justice, forgiving because that's His job. No, the forgiveness of God's people who are the apple of His eye will come at great cost. Christ will bear the anger due our sin. Christ will be spared not. The Father will bring all 
of the white hot fury of His wrath down on His Son so that hell itself and all of its fullness falls on Jesus. And for you and me, as Samuel Rutherford was famous for putting, all our hell is dried up. No more hell for the people of God. Now we must understand the Lord may take His precious people into chastisement. We may have the tokens of His displeasure in view of our sin. Your communion with God can be interrupted by your sin. Where you feel distant from the Lord, that your prayers are hitting you know, the, the iron curtain above you, the iron clouds. You can feel as though the vigor and power of your spiritual life is vanished because of some issue in your life. Or maybe the Lord was just pleased for a season to test you and to remove the light of His countenance upon you. We can go through seasons like that. But the people of God who trust in Christ will never be condemned. The Lord will not bring the fullness of His curse upon us. Chastisement, yes. Curse, no. Because Christ was cursed in our place. But here's the question. Why will the Lord refuse to retain His anger against us? Why will He determine not to give us what our sins deserve, not to make us taste the horror of forsakenness? Well, look at the reason in the text. End of verse 18. He does not retain His anger forever because He delights. He takes pleasure in steadfast love. You see what Mike was saying? It pleases the Lord to show mercy. He relishes the gift of love lavished upon us. Dear friends, is that what we believe about God? When we've sinned, when we've been struck in our conscience of the offense our sin is to God, and we're emotionally wrecked over our sin, so that like the guilty tax collector Jesus talks about in Luke 18, he can't even lift his head to heaven. You remember he, he prays, but his grief is such that he just beats his breast in contrition. And he comes with nothing in himself. He, he only brings his foulness to the Lord. And he pleads, God, be merciful to me. Or, or better in Luke 18, God, let there be a sacrifice of propitiation, a sacrifice that satisfies your justice and takes away my sin. For me, the sinner. The only thing this man claims to himself is I come as the sinner. On what is that man depending? On what is he staking his soul? It's not his grief. It's not the works of his hands. It's not His ever-flowing tears as though crying a lot will earn you God's favor. He comes resting and supporting Himself on one fact. God delights in steadfast love. Our God loves mercy. Our God is ready to forgive sinners. Our God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Indeed, judgment, as the Puritans were wont to say, Judgment is the Lord's strange work. He does not rejoice in crushing the disobedient. He rejoices in doing good to His people. And when He afflicts us, 
as Jeremiah puts it in Lamentations 3, he doesn't afflict from his heart. We might say it pains the Lord to punish us. His heart isn't in it. Our God is not a sadistic father who brutalizes his children with unpredictable wrath. God is not an ogre in the sky ready to set off at any moment in implacable, unapproachable, volcanic violence to whomever may draw near to Him. No, just the opposite. We draw near even when we've grieved our God with great sin because He's ready to receive us. He delights in pouring out His covenant love. Brethren, God cherishes giving us the tokens of His favor, the privileges of knowing Him, of being reconciled to Him, of being heard by Him. The Lord takes pleasure in giving us covenant affection. Isn't that breathtaking? I know there's a hesitation in all of us to actually believe this. We're like an offending little child standing at the door of daddy's room watching to see if our grieved father will actually open the door to us, wondering if he'll hold out his hands to us and take us into his loving arms. You understand, as John Owen put it, how unwilling is a child to come into the presence of an angry father? It's not what our God is like. How do we know that our God will receive us, embrace us, and show us unceasing love. Because he says that he delights in covenant love. And this delight in covenant love is the reason for the coming of Christ. Read Mary's song in Luke 1. Read Zachariah's song when he was finally able to talk. What was the theme of both of their songs? What binds them together? It's one thing. Covenant the Son of God will be born to Mary because God is remembering His covenant love. The Savior from on high will visit us and redeem us because God is showing mercy to the fathers. The gift of Christ, having the eternal Son of God take flesh, veil His glory, face all of our frailties, and live as one of us to encounter hostility, suffering, and death for us, that is proof of God's unfailing Love. The Lord Jesus goes to the cross in essence saying to us this, something like this. My love for you is this big. Do you see it? Are you awed by it? There is no God like our God. No love like His love. The Lord thirdly is without equal because He breaks sin's power. Verse 19, since the Lord loves love, and refuses to retain His anger, it only makes sense that we hear He will again have compassion on us. More literally, it's two verbs. He will return. He will have compassion on us. Whatever separation our sins have caused, the Lord bridges the gap. We don't rise up to Him. He comes to us. He takes the initiative in a movement of mercy. You see, the present suffering the remnant face with all their attacking enemies in exile might lead them to think all hope is now lost, but it isn't. After darkness, there will be light. Sin, even the sin of the remnant, hasn't extinguished hope. 
The hope isn't in God's people. The hope is in God's compassion. He's the Father of mercies. He can't deny Himself. It's who He is. A compassionate God. Again, it confronts our unbelief. Our deceitful flesh under the lying influence of Satan would have us believe that we've out God's grace. I've really done it this time. And there's no way back. The latest crime of mine puts me beyond the pale. Indeed, we may be facing the consequences of sin, His fatherly displeasure upon us. So we assume the door to mercy is shut for me, right? But as Isaiah says to his generation, Isaiah 54 verse 8, the Lord declares an overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. God's compassions will not cease. They will never come to an end for us. John Calvin says here on this thought, until we be thus persuaded, persuaded that God is by nature compassionate, let us know that we have made but little progress in the school of God. How much progress have you made in the school of God? Do you know that your God is compassionate? Do you know that His ear is open to the sound of your cry? On what other basis do you have to approach Him? Do you think that you could somehow merit an entrance to God's presence? You come on the sole basis of His compassion. And without that, beloved, we all would be lost in an abyss of darkness. But the truth is, even after we sin, the Lord doesn't let His people go. He returns to us. He shows us mercy. He shouldn't do that, but He does. And that shouldn't cause us to take His mercy for granted and to run after the passing pleasures of sin. Oh, God will just forgive me anyway. No, that's not how the one gripped by grace lives. The one who's been awakened by saving grace, who is a new creature in Christ, is the old things have passed away and behold, things are new. And it makes him want to know God better. It makes him want to love God more. It makes us want to live a life of devotion to Him. Was that what's going on in your heart? And then in the exercise of His compassion, note what the Lord does. Micah says, verse 19, that He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Not only does He remove the guilt of sin and provide forgiveness, He breaks the power of sin. The verb he will tread means to subdue, to bring into subjection. Formerly, our sin dominated us, but the Lord will ensure that sin will never reign over us again. Its power to enslave us has been shattered. Of course, if you're continuing in sin, it, it raises a question. Have, has that power been shattered for you? Because for the people of God, sin lies as a defeated force under the Lord's feet. Now, what does that mean practically for you and me? It means that we, though we still stumble, we labor with the old man, we're being renewed day by day. It means that we will not be slaves to sin. Our former master offering us peace, but never delivering, he 
sin dangles satisfaction before you. But when you've chased it, you know that only misery lies at the end of that path. And ultimately, death for the wages of sin is death. But our God whipped the tyrant sin. The Lord subdued us to Himself. He snatched us from the grip of sin and He placed us underneath His gracious dominion. And now, sin shall not be our master. Paul elaborates on this at great length in Romans 6. We have a new life in Christ. We have a new master. And we're able to walk by the Spirit in a new life, crucified with Christ to the body of sin, that the old man would be put away. Indeed, what is done with our sins? Last phrase of verse 19 again. You will cast all, not a few, not some, not most, but all our sins into the depths of the sea. This is Exodus language because it recalls what happened at the Red Sea. Remember what happened to Pharaoh and his army? Big bad Pharaoh and his chariots rolling in to crush. What did the Lord do? He overwhelmed them. The Lord tells His people, the Egyptians who oppressed you and hunted you have gone down to the depths like a stone. You will never see them again forever. But here... It's not a physical threat that's removed like Pharaoh's army. It's a greater spiritual threat. The power of sin hunting you has been overcome. Our God has drawn us out of the muck and mire and He's taken the force that oppressed us, sin, and slain its power. And what does it mean for you and me? It means that our whole detailed list of violations of God's law have been wiped away. And we don't just have a clean slate. No, Jesus took our bad record and paid the penalty. He crushed the curse at His cross so that condemnation can never touch us. Why has God done this? Because He delights in covenant love. How should this affect your soul? Charles Wesley, sometimes I wonder if he gets this better than we do in his hymns. Listen to a few things he says. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumph of His grace. He breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Or how about one we'll sing in a few minutes? No condemnation now I dread. Jesus, and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him, my living head, and clothed with righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love. How can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Why is God incomparable? Well, one more reason. His love abides. Verse 20, the echoes of Exodus 34 continue here with the words faithfulness and steadfast love. Verse 20, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. What does the promise to Jacob and Abraham have to do with Micah and the remnant? What does it have to do with us? 
Micah's generation are a thousand years removed from Abraham and Jacob, and we are some three thousand years removed. It could be with our what's trending now mentality that we fail to see the significance of days long ago. But beloved, God's work didn't begin with us. And it didn't begin with Micah's generation. Our God has been proving His fidelity and covenant love for well over a millennia before Micah began to preach. Indeed, we could go all the way back to the beginning of time. But in God's Word, Abraham is often used as the example of God's particular grace. The Lord came to him as an idolater at 75 years old, and He called him, He awakened him with life by grace alone. And what was God's great promise to Abraham? Genesis 17, 7, I will be God to you and to your seed, your children, after you. In other words, I've entered into a relationship that is indissoluble with you. Yahweh is saying to Abraham, I will never stop being your God. I won't forget the promises I've made. And those promises were only renewed in the days of Jacob. The Lord simply reaffirmed His covenant mercies and He carried Jacob through his troublesome life with this commitment of divine grace. And what will this commitment of divine grace entail? Well, Jesus, in an interesting passage, highlights it when He's in the middle of a controversy with the Sadducees. You have to always remember, the Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. These turkeys believe that when you die, everything is over. There's no afterlife. There's nothing beyond the grave. This is it. How depressing would that be? This is it. That's their argument. But Jesus confronts them with the burning bush narrative where the angel of the Lord spoke to Moses from the bush and said, I am, not I was, I am right now and continue to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What does that mean? It means in some sense when Jesus is walking the earth, the lives of Abraham and Jacob are not forgotten. They live. For God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And these promises made to Abraham and Jacob will be realized so that Abraham and Jacob enjoy them. They don't just welcome God's promises from a distance as those with faith. They will see the heavenly city. God's faithfulness and covenant love will be shown to them personally because His faithfulness and covenant love abide. That is totally unlike any ancient Near Eastern deity whose promises, frankly, don't mean squat. Their promises fail over and over again, but God's covenant love will never prove false. He will overcome all Abraham's sins, all Jacob's sins, and He will perform the word He promised, which includes sending a Redeemer to rescue His people from their sin. And why would God do this? Why is He so concerned to keep His ancient promises? Because it's who He is. A God of loyalty. A God of dogged affection. A God of unceasing commitment. A God who loves. Brethren, do you see the love of God? Do you see it displayed to you in the coming of Christ who is the seed of Abraham? He is the hope to which all the fathers were looking. And He's the proof of abiding love. Dear friends, we should stand back and survey God's goodness to His people 
from Abraham to us and say, who is a God like you? How amazing is His love. Well, may we be filled with wonder and praise to a God whose love is without equal. Brother, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come in awe of You and the work that You have done of Your pardoning grace, of Your willingness, O Lord, to take our sins and lay them on Jesus Christ, of treading those sins underfoot that they should not have dominion over us, of giving us this eternal hope because You delight in steadfast love. Lord, would we therefore bless Your great and holy name and would You help us to walk worthily of You out of gratitude to You. For we pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the people of God said, Amen.